0: Because this allows the body to actually reintegrate the energy that's frozen in that moment of trauma. And when that energy is reintegrated back into the body, then the nervous system can release from that trauma.
1: Back to another episode of Dear Men. I've been wanting to do this one for a long time, so I'm really excited that we are finally doing it. And I just want to sort of introduce the topic and say that um, part of the impetus for this is that I've noticed that um, a lot of the clients that come into our men's program have some kind of trauma in their past and their background. And I think this is something that we need to talk about more as a as a society, as a culture, and support people through. So our sort of intention for this episode is to inspire hope. And um, we're going to be talking about some some deep stuff. So hang hang in there with us for this one. Um, and welcome back to the podcast, Z. Thank you for being here. Hi everyone. Thanks, Mel. Well, it's neat because you've been on before as a member of our Girl Talk episodes and now you're coming on in the capacity of being a trained therapist. So I think it's kind of neat to see all the different sides of a person. Um, So thanks for repping the feminine and the therapy world at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be great. So yeah, so we're going to talk about what is somatic therapy today and as sort of an origin story, what we're actually going to start with is two different types of trauma. And I think this is something that we kind of get confused about in terms of like, what is trauma? Um, There's big T trauma and little T trauma. That's something that we can talk about. And there's also developmental trauma versus something that's called shock trauma or event trauma. So we're just going to sort of go through those. If you could take us through what does it mean to have trauma Um, as a basis and then we can kind of go from there.
0: Awesome. So first off to just begin with an actual definition of trauma, trauma is basically anything that overwhelms a person's ability to cope. So it could be something like combat vets, um, a sexual assault, it could even be a divorce. Um, It could be having a really traumatic roommate situation. It could be a car accident. So there's many different types of events But if the system is flooded and overwhelmed and you're not able to actually cope in your life, that event would signify a traumatic event in your life.
1: I've also heard it defined as too much, too fast.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And there's many different ways our body reacts to that Um, in somatic therapy. There's the thought of expansion and collapse. And there's many different ways in which we expand and contract And our body does that based on how safe we feel. So when we feel unsafe in trauma, our body has a tendency to collapse, disassociate, um, and basically just check out of parts of our life. So you had mentioned the two different types of trauma. Let's get into that. So most people are familiar with PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. That's known as shock trauma or event trauma. What that basically means is most people are familiar. It's The trauma of combat vets, assault survivors, or accidents, like a car accident. It's an event trauma. It's usually a one-time or so event or specific situation in which a trauma is activated in the nervous system.
1: Can this also be the, the sudden death of someone close to you, like a parent or a sibling or someone you love?
0: Yes, it could be. Um, there was a situation, a couple, um, number of years back in which one of my friends was murdered. And I remember that when I was going through my, uh, doctoral program, I was looking through the DSM diagnoses and I actually had the, um, the short-term version of PTSD, which is under 30 days. And I had that based on this event because I was so freaked out that this had happened to somebody I knew. And PTSD in general is longer than 30 days. There's actually a whole clinical definition of how long it is. And in order to fit the criteria for an actual clinical definition, there's criteria you have to fill. But in general, the three main criteria is that in PTSD, there's usually a life threatening situation or you're witnessing or experiencing it. So a lot of EMTs or people that are first responders also have PTSD from witnessing something, even if it didn't directly happen to them. A lot of times little kids will have PTSD if they grow up in domestic violence households, because there's a lot of things they can't control and they feel really, really unsafe and are often trying to protect and navigate the abusive person and the other parent that they're trying to actually keep safe or protect as a little child.
1: Yeah. Or, or siblings. Correct. Yeah. yeah. The experience of it being life-threatening is what's important there. Whether it actually was life-threatening or not isn't as relevant I, in my understanding of it in your nervous system as if you, if you believe it is, if you believe it is life-threatening, your system will activate in a certain way that will flood you because you believe your body believes that it is in danger and could die. And yeah. I, I also just kind of want to name sexual abuse as a traumatic event, significant traumatic event. And I used to work with survivors of sexual abuse. And I think that we'll, we'll touch on this a bit, but for many of them, the experience of post-traumatic stress wasn't triggered all the time. But when it was, it was almost like they were reliving that yeah. moment. And so an, an example of this is, I know some sexual abuse survivors, both men and women, if they're in a certain um, type of lighting right? Like if there's low light in the bedroom and they're having sex with their partner, it can trigger um, a a trauma response because their body is reliving. And it's a, there's a difference between reliving and remembering, which I'd love for you to talk about a bit, but basically their Mm -hmm. body goes into a trauma response and it's reliving that fear, that shock, that trauma, that pain that they went through at another time, but it's showing up in their nervous system in the moment.
0: Yeah that's 100% true. So getting into the reliving versus re-experiencing, the basic criteria of PTSD is that it's a life-threatening event that involves a sense of threat, avoidance of that threat, and the re-experiencing, meaning that there might be nightmares, flashbacks, or intrusive thoughts. Um, That could be as simple as, I remember somebody I knew um, had been abused, molested when they were younger. And any touch on the base of their back triggered a full remembering of that experience of when they were molested when they were younger. So the in the re-experiencing, it's actually opening up the neural pathway that was frozen in the trauma. So when you're actually re-experiencing things, for example, vets are the most common way, if they hear a firework or firecrackers, they are not at the beach with people they love. They are opening up that neurobiology of all of the trauma that was stored when they were impacted in war. And so in that actual moment, their system is flooded with many other things that we're gonna talk about, but they are reliving that experience with the neurobiology of being in that traumatic experience. So that's why they seem, well, they don't seem, but some people are like, oh, that's so crazy. But if you were re-experiencing the neurobiology of that actual threat, it would be pretty terrifying to you as well.
1: Yeah, and this is also um, the territory of a number of um, the people I worked with would have nightmares. And I think that's that's a common symptom for post-traumatic stress of you are actually woken up. And again, it's not a dream. It's not a memory. It's your body is actually reliving being there. So it's a reenactment and it's sort of like a record that's skipping, like it's kind of constantly skipping on this one place and it's, it can be really debilitating. So just to name, I think that's one thing that can be confusing if, if you haven't experienced it is it's not a re, it's not memory. It's like, you're actually going through it again. And that's why it can be so exhausting for people that are going through this. Mm -hmm.
0: I've heard the other thing with, since I know there's a lot of women that are sexually assaulted, I've also heard the example of somebody coming in to do processing on a rape that occurred and they could actually physically feel the person inside of them still. And so, you know, it's not that people are making this stuff up. They're actually experiencing over and over and reliving these events and re-experiencing them inside their actual bodies. So PTSD, It's the diagnosis that's actually in the clinical field right now, but there's another term that's talked about a lot, which is CPTSD, which is complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Right now, it's currently not a clinical diagnosis in the um, DSM or the ICD, which is the health codes or the mental health codes, but it's going to be most likely coming up within the next year or two as far as a lot of clinicians would agree that it needs to be in there. And C, PTSD, which is complex post-traumatic stress disorder, it's also known as developmental trauma. Developmental trauma is known as relational trauma. It's environmental trauma, and it could also be intergenerational trauma. Usually, this is what happens when we're young. So how developmental trauma takes place um, is that, It's a significant and chronic misattunement from caregivers. A lot of this work that I know about developmental trauma is from Lawrence Heller, who works in um, a modality that he developed called NARM. And it basically breaks down that when your caregivers are misattuned to you, meaning that they're not actually being present with you, whether seeing you, hearing you, being present with you.
1: Yeah. And I just want to jump in here to give an example. So for example, if your mother had depression and she wasn't able to be present with you and there would be just moments or days or possibly weeks when she was just completely checked out and all she was doing was sort of surviving on her own, you would most likely develop, you would have developmental trauma because your, your mother, the, woman who was supposed to be caring for you was emotionally absent. And I've seen this in a lot of the clients that we've worked with where developmental trauma doesn't need to be, my dad hit me. It can be, I was, I was never hugged. There was no physical affection and attunement, physical attunement to me when I was young. So that's a form of neglect. But I think for a lot of people, it's confusing because they, when they think of trauma, they think of domestic violence or war And in actuality, a lot of the men that we've worked with in our program have developmental trauma, but it's more from neglect or misattunement like you were talking about, which is just basically like they weren't there for you. They weren't there for Mm -hmm. you. They weren't emotionally aware of you. They didn't help you learn how to love, really. I mean, a lot of that attachment stuff comes down to love and attunement. So just to to name what that actually feels like, it could be that there was something going on with one or both of your parents where they just weren't attuned to you. And it could be that they had developmental trauma themselves, like you mentioned, intergenerational or there was something, you know, they had a mental health diagnosis, such as bipolar or borderline personality disorder or um, depression, anxiety or depression, all of those would be likely to result in children that had developmental trauma as they grew up. Mm -hmm. Yep.
0: So when we have this... um A lot of people that I see, they have some emotions that are acceptable in their family and others that are not acceptable. For example, anger a lot of times is one of those non-acceptable emotions for people, specifically a lot of the women that I work with, that it makes sense. Because if we have parents that are misattuned to us in some way, and we have the experience of wanting to be angry, we also need those caregivers to survive. And so we have to repress that anger in order to survive because we need that connection with our caregivers. And this results in the child thinking that they are bad or that it's their fault because they can't get really mad at mom and dad. They can't move out of the house and say, I'm going to go live by myself if they're six or seven or 10. And so this results in the child having to adapt and they have to figure out a way to take care of themselves to ensure their survival in that environment, whether it's physical survival or whether it's emotional survival. You know, it could be just their parents give them silent treatment if they express any emotion around anger. And so they learn anger is not acceptable and I need to learn how to adapt and shove all of those emotions down so that I can still feel connected to my caregiver,
1: which I need for my survival. And this isn't conscious. Like what I noticed is a lot of the the men that come through our program and people I've spoken with, they don't realize that this happened. It's just the body's way of moving through to the best of our capabilities as human beings. And so you might grow up and think, "Oh well, you know, it's okay that I don't feel anger." But really, anger at its core is there was a boundary crossed and I need something. It's about, it's usually about a human need. And if that gets stuffed down, that's a natural, normal part of human expression. And when you start to stifle natural, normal parts of human expression, man, that comes out sideways. Something has to give in terms of how you end up coping. And for a lot of people, many times that becomes addiction. Some kind of addiction comes to comes to pass because your body is just trying to cope and basically numb some of those intense emotions that were never able to be expressed. So forms of addiction can be porn addiction, can be alcoholism, can also be uh, eating disorders, which maybe you can touch on since that's also part of your background Z. But I just want to say like, this isn't something that we're consciously aware of. It's like we have these coping mechanisms that then end up getting in the way later in life. And for a lot of our guys, it it has to do, especially with shame and the feminine and not being able to talk to women or have healthy relationships with women, things like that. But the origin story is what we're talking about here, which is almost always some kind of trauma.
0: Mm -hmm. Yep. So if the kid thinks they're bad in order to maintain connection to the caregiver, and sometimes um, I do work with some clients with DID and with DID, there is... Can you explain what DID is? Sorry, Um, DID is dissociative identity disorder or clients that have multiple personalities within their neurobiology. And how that happens is that when the personality is being formed, there's severe amounts of trauma, which cause the person to have to adapt in order to survive those severe traumas. And their neurobiology actually breaks up into different personalities within one body. So, that they can actually survive the trauma that's happening to them because the body is amazing. And that goes right along the lines with complex PTSD because even in cases where we don't break up into different people, we have to learn how to adapt. And as we get older, it's not even the trauma that matters anymore, but it's the adaptations that we have to create to survive that cause problems in the future. So, this is all from the training in NARM that I learned, but it's through the lens of the adaptations become the problem.
1: And can you give an example of what, what those adaptations would be maybe from your history, if you want to, especially. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, um, so, so my background is eating disorders. um, I had, so for example, in my family, um, my parents were around a lot. They were present. They were loving. Sometimes I didn't feel as though they were emotionally attuned. And let me explain how. So anger was not an appropriate emotion and sadness didn't feel appropriate. So anytime that I was either angry or specifically sad, instead of my parents actually holding space for that and saying, it's okay that you're sad. Sadness is a normal feeling. You know, do you want to just sit and be sad for a little bit? I would notice that my parents would have a tendency to override that emotion, whether taking on my fear or my anger or telling me um, the the Pollyanna way. There's so many good things in your life. Like, you know, you don't need to be sad. Look at all the bright sides. Look at the positive things. And it didn't feel as... (laughs) you know, neurotic is that. But my experience was that I internalized when I was younger, looking back that it's not okay to be sad and I have to be happy all the time. So if I have anger or sadness, I need to push that way down. And I can't experience that, which led to later in my teens developing an eating disorder. And I was anorexic and bulimic. And I often talked about them as the perfectionist and the fuck you, because there's this crazy desire to be perfect. And also this crazy desire to destroy everything and wanting to just have everyone leave me the fuck alone. And it's that, it's the same thing we're talking about in all of complex trauma is that desire for connection, that the tracking the connection and disconnection, the perfectionist wanting to connect, wanting to be perfect. And then that fuck you, that complete disconnection, leave me the fuck alone.
1: So did I answer your question? Yeah, that was great. I think it's a good example of how um, complex trauma doesn't have to be something dramatic. And another way of thinking about this is big T trauma versus little T trauma, which is sort of big T trauma, I think is like a different way of saying shock trauma or some large event. Right. So you're one of your parents beating you would be big T trauma. Little t trauma is more what we're talking about here of misattunement or telling, you know, a child is crying. You're like, don't cry, which on the surface sounds like something our culture frequently does. But if you look at it truly, it's telling someone not to feel the way that they feel. It's telling that person, this emotion is not okay. And, and, and that has a cost that sort of cutting off of natural human expression has a cost. And little T trauma can also be sort of missed moments, moments that you were reaching out for physical affection and you were ignored or you, or you maybe didn't reach out physically, like putting your arms out, but there was something you were, you were crying out for help in some way and your caregivers were not responding to that. And much of that happens at the age of six or under in terms of unconscious, um, uh, patterning. I don't know if you want to speak to that a little bit, but a lot of our neurobiology is established from zero to six. So there's a lot of stuff you might not even remember that has to do with what we're talking about here. Yeah.
0: So empathy, as, as of my understanding currently, is developed usually from zero to three. And so if you have people that there's a lot of dysfunction and dysregulation in your household, empathy doesn't really develop properly. And about till age eight is when our subconscious is ruling. So from the age of zero to eight, we're like sponges, just absorbing everything that we're seeing, hearing, and watching our family or adult dynamics around us. And we're just recording and encoding all of this information into our unconscious, which it's harder as we get older. The example I like to use is a dog. If you got bit by a dog when you were or no, I'll use this example. I like this. So if you have a kid that does art and they're seven and they bring you their painting and you're like, oh, that's so ugly. I can't believe you, you would use pink for clouds. They might have develop a complex, never paint again, think they're a horrible person and they're shitty at everything. You tell a 10 year old or an 11 year old that they painted a pink cloud and it sucks. And they might be like, suck it. You suck. And that's the difference between the age barrier where we're sponges, or we start to develop at about nine, a critical filter, which allows us to push some of that information out. But before that develops, everything is encoded into our system and becomes a part of our subconscious. And our subconscious rules about mm, 88% of what we do on a daily basis. So if we see a dog out in the world and we got bit by a dog, we don't have to consciously tell our body, there's a dog. I got bit. It has teeth. I should be scared. I should make my heart stop uh, beat faster. We just automatically react to these things. A lot of times in relationships or with sexuality, people notice that they have these patterns that come out that they don't want to do. For example they feel really claustrophobic and they push away from their partner, even though they want connection and closeness, but it's that vulnerability and that connection piece that when that person gets too close, it triggers, I need you to back off, even though they want to be close with that partner. So it feels like an internal war and that's because the subconscious is dictating that interaction.
1: Yeah, and that's something I just wanna highlight in terms of patterns, Or even, you know, a lot of the men that we work with, one thing I've noticed is a lot of them will report like going into a freeze state. They don't talk about it that way, but when Mm -hmm. they meet a woman that they're attracted to or they're they're thinking about approaching a woman, their body will actually go into a bit of a freeze state and there will be kind of sometimes some racing thoughts like, I should go over there. Should I go over there? What if I go over there? What if I get rejected? What if it doesn't work? What should I say? And there's this kind of loop going. And there's this freeze that happens. And if that is, you know, repeated over and over, it can be um, really frustrating and really discouraging because it's like, I want to go over there. It's like what you said of there's the conscious desire or, you know, for the example you gave, I want to connect with my partner sexually. And then there's the physical body, which if the physical body doesn't feel safe doing something, Guys, it's game over. The physical body (laughs) (laughs) like win. It's gonna win. If your if your physical body feels threatened, even if it doesn't make sense, this can even be going into a performance review at work. It doesn't have to be in a sexual scenario, but if your body senses danger or like we might get rejected or shamed or hurt or attacked, you know, you're gonna have a physiological response. And um just to kind of rename, like what we're going to start shifting gears now into how to process this trauma and how to use something like somatic therapy to resolve it. Because what I see that's so painful is when we want something and our body doesn't feel safe. It's like this, like you said, that push pull is so aggravating because you're trying, yeah. like, I want to connect with women. I want to have sexual relationships. I want this. And there's a block, like, your body is like, there's something about it that doesn't feel good or feel safe. And it's like, you know, that, that must be resolved for you to move forward.
0: Yeah. I call it the polarity or the internal war. Um, Okay. So let me wrap up complex PTSD. There's one more thing I want to mention before we move on. So with complex PTSD, just like um, PTSD, which is the event trauma, it's still the same thing, the sense of threat, the avoidance, and the re-experiencing, but there's actually three other things that happen because of this um, relational piece and that usually people have issues in relationships They have a negative self-concept, meaning they don't think good about themselves, and they also have dysregulated emotions, meaning they, they can go really high or really low. They can usually feel really out of control, or they can disassociate, which is like checking out or just going away. So complex PTSD is the overarching What people have noticed that are somatic therapists and regular psychotherapists is that when people come in, even for a PTSD trauma, which is an event or shock trauma, let's say um, a car accident, and they're processing it with a psychotherapist, it will be exacerbated because of developmental trauma. So PTSD and event trauma also triggers and layers on top of the developmental trauma. And we all, I believe we all have some level of developmental trauma because it's impossible for people to be perfect and show up all the time.
1: Yeah. And, you know, what you just mentioned kind of um, when I was doing hardcore supporting survivors of sexual abuse, I was doing a lot of research. And one of the things that jumped out at me was that sexual abuse survivors are 70% more likely to experience sexual assault as adults. And that number is, is primarily for people who have not processed, who have not gotten support for the original developmental trauma um, of that. But there's something about our nervous systems have this tendency to repeat experiences until we process the original point of experience there's just something about the human you know being that it is consistently you know like if you if you had an alcoholic um household and you and there was a lot of chaos and drama one thing that can happen is you can recreate that in your relationships in the future until you sort of process the original trauma and then you create healthier relationships and it's not because you want the drama or the chaos. That's not what it is. Again, if 88% of what we do every day has to do with the subconscious, that's kind of ruling a lot of our behaviors and our, the way we show up in relationship until we address it and we get healthier and we get some help for it. Yeah,
0: because it's familiar. We always gravitate towards what's familiar, even if that thing is not good for us. Um, what did I want to say? Hmm. Oh, I wanted to say, so in developmental trauma, the other important difference is that this is where a lot of the personality disorders, like you mentioned, borderline personality disorder or things where parents are just not able to show up because they're not necessarily mentally stable or healthy. A lot of developmental trauma is responsible for personality disorders because if we're trying to form a core self, and there's disruptions or ways we have to adapt, the core self isn't able to form in a healthy way,
1: or which can lead criticized. into if we're yes. constantly criticized or judged. I see. I've heard that a lot from our clients: is that there was a critical parent, whether it was mom or dad, that sort of no matter what they did, it wasn't really okay. Their core yeah. belief is, "I'm not okay."
0: Yep. Yep. I'm bad. Yep. And for specifically a lot of the intense uh, clients that have experienced a lot of childhood trauma, specifically uh, DID clients or multiple personality clients, it is unbearable for them to think that the world has no love or no safety externally. And so they have to unconsciously make themselves bad and make it their fault and that they deserve this punishment or this or that because it is unbearable. For a child to think that the world is not a loving and safe place for them ever. And that's a lot of, they call it the locus of control shift or the locus of loyalty shift. But we do this on an unconscious level and we carry this into, I mean, I had a belief when I was processing in therapy in my twenties that I was worthless and I was like, where the fuck did that come from? <laughs> like, But we all have levels of these belief systems that are somewhere in us that are triggered by specific big T or little T events that have happened in our past.
1: Yeah. So as we start to um, move into like how to process this and somatic therapy specifically, I'm wondering if you can kind of walk us through what, what kinds of relationships do we have if we haven't yet sort of processed specifically developmental trauma? Ooh,
0: uh, <laughs> probably pretty unhealthy ones. Um, you're probably with somebody that also has high levels of trauma in their nervous system because you always attract what is familiar. Um, You'll notice that people that um, I've had a lot of people that had alcoholic moms or dads, specifically fathers, my women clients, and they will attract another alcoholic or drug addict partner because the patterning is familiar and they've used to, they've become used to being the caretaker or everyone has a specific job that they developed and adapt to from this trauma. So basically if you're unhealthy, you're vibrating at an unhealthy level and you're probably going to attract unhealthy people. And the healthier you become, you begin to increase your vibration and your vitality and your life force. So you're probably going to be attracting people that have done more personal work and they vibe higher and they're ideally healthier, you know, in quotes, healthier.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's one thing that I've noticed about our clients as they've moved through the program and then beyond. And a lot of our graduates is that they're having completely different kinds of relationships now, and they're attracting different kinds of women because they've done the work and it's actually, it's, it's like a natural process. It's not like they tried to attract different women. It just happened because there's a, there's a match there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Essie. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and maybe if you could just touch on the difference between talk therapy and somatic therapy.
0: Yes, so there's something called top down and bottom up. Top down, think of it like your brain. CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is often known as talk therapy. is I love it. I recovered from my eating disorder with talk therapy, but I also had a crazy aversion to being in my body at that time. So I have a fond place in my heart for CBT. However, CBT has not shown to be the absolute best in getting to the trauma stored in our body. So CBT, which you think about is brain therapy or talk therapy. It's what they call top down. If you're focusing on your brain down. And then they have something called somatic therapy. Soma is the body. And so somatic therapy is working with dealing with your body and they call that bottom up. If you think about your body as like your feet coming up, it's dealing with your body in an integrated way, moving up. So S E or somatic experiencing, um, that's the most common form of somatic therapy in the psychotherapy world as well. And All somatic therapies work with the dysregulation of the nervous system. Usually SE or somatic therapy is specific to PTSD, which is the event or shock trauma, but it can also work with developmental trauma. Um, SE or somatic therapy It works to bring, um, it works with the autonomic nervous system. So the autonomic nervous system is the unconscious bodily functions. It's the heart rate, the digestion. You don't have to tell your heart to beat. you don't have to tell your body to digest food. And there's two parts of the autonomic nervous system or the ANS, and they're the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. The sympa in school, I remembered it like sympa, 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 meaning like there's a bear chasing you. And then the parasympathetic is like the parachute. So it allows your body to like relax and decompress. So the autonomic nervous system is responsible for our fight, flight, um, collapse, or freeze. And because Because there's the fight or flight response, this is the nervous system that's activated when we have a trauma. Peter Levine is the one that developed SE.
1: Which is also known as somatic experiencing and um, is what she was talking about in terms of a modality that's quite popular. When you mentioned the word somatic therapy or the phrase, a lot of clinicians will think of SE. Correct.
0: And SE says that sensations are associated with a past trauma and those sensations become trapped in the body. So Peter Levine is the creator of SE and he started to create it by observing animals in the wild. And you guys have probably all seen this with your dog or your cat. If there's some traumatic situation that happens, they'll begin to shake violently and you'll watch them and they'll shake violently for like a couple minutes. And it's almost like they shake it out of their nervous system. And then they walk off like nothing ever happened. (laughs) Whereas humans, we don't allow ourselves to do this. Or a lot of times I would have clients that experience high levels of anxiety from trauma and they'll start bringing up the trauma in the room and they'll start violently shaking and they will freak out. And then I have to tell them, no, this is just your body's way because we're all just big animals. This is your nervous system shaking out the trauma. And so there's nothing scary or wrong about it. Just allow your body to shake that out of your nervous system. So he developed this method and the method is to get your body back to safety. So a lot of times in somatic experience, this includes completing what they call a biological completion of the movement. So let's just say that you were in a sexual assault and you wanted to push the person off with both hands against your chest. You wanted to push them off of your body, but because they were holding you down, you couldn't do that. So in SE, they might have you put your hands in front of your chest and then you push that person off, but you do it very, very slow because this allows the body to actually reintegrate the energy that's frozen in that moment of trauma. And when that energy is reintegrated back into the body, then the nervous system can release from that trauma.
1: I remember actually I was at a workshop when I was... um, working with survivors of sexual abuse, and there was an SE practitioner and he was doing an exercise with us of uh, just standing across the room from someone from someone and having them approach you, and they were approaching very slowly. and your job was to say stop when you felt unsafe. So to kind of track mm. what you felt and when the person got too close, To say stop, but they had you do it very slowly, like you said. So you would raise your hand up and say stop, but it was all way slowed down because for a lot of us we had our boundaries crossed when we were children at some point. That's pretty common. And we weren't actually able to speak up for ourselves at that point. There was no completion, like you said. So it can also, you know, be something with the body or words, but SE, I think, is a good example of some people who, who do it, they're like, it's really slow. And it's like, yeah, it's really yeah. slow, but that's it's on purpose and it actually is quite effective.
0: Oh my God. I remember um, I was having a client and I was having a, a, a session with him. And so finally I was like, all right, you're the therapist now. And so he was like, what? And I'm like, walk me through SE because he was doing that with another therapist. And so he had me do something and I had some nervous something in my body and I was swaying my chair left to right. And then he walked me through the process. And then he was like, all right, now do it really, really slow. And I started doing that really slow and oh, immediately I did not like that. (laughs) And it was amazing though, because it reminded me of a cognitive session with my ex-therapist. And I remember I would just talk and talk and talk because to articulate things, whatever probably felt powerful for me. And I remember her pausing and being like, I hear that you're really angry, but it sounds like you're really sad. And I just like, I was like, Oh my God. And I just started crying in session. And so there's something about slowing down that movement that allows that frozen part of your body to unfreeze. So that activation that's frozen in your nervous system is it allows it to unfreeze and unstick and have the opportunity to reintegrate that energy back into your body. And it's really neat because usually people will make a movement or they'll take a big breath or they'll sigh and you can actually physically see their body change when that energy is released in some type of way.
1: Yeah. My experience in terms of somatic therapy is, is there's tightness or stuckness in, in my body. And then the somatic therapy helps me release that and let it go. And sometimes it makes no sense. Right? Like, no, it makes no logical sense. And what I mean by that is, I'm having a great day. I go to somatic therapy, something happens, and I'm sobbing or yelling, right? Or like grunting, right? Like some kind of physical release. And I think a lot of us are like, well, what does it mean? Like, where did it come from? Like, what is it, you know, what's the origin? And a lot of times you don't actually need to know that. It's just the wisdom of your body is releasing whatever you need to let go of and allowing that to happen. Allowing that to happen is the game. That's the whole game. And that's a lot of times what we're trying to numb or not do with substances or whatever it is, is not feel that pain or shame or whatever, whatever it is. And, you know, one of the things that we coach the guys on in our program is let it, let it happen. Let it flow through you. If you're angry, like grunt in the car, like, but allow it to come up and out, allow it to be expressed because that's what that energy is trying to do. It's trying to get out of your of your system and be kind of shaken off like the animals you described. But our society and our culture doesn't really support that. We're like, you have to know what it is. And there's only acceptable ways. And, as, and our families of origin often back that up. Like you're not allowed to scream or cry after a certain age, or even possibly when you're a toddler, which would Absolutely be traumatic. Um, But there's a lot of sort of like rules and regulations around what you're allowed to feel and when and how you're allowed to express it. And that, you know, kind of fucks us up a little bit.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good point you make too, because in CBT, there's a lot of stuff that you're just talking about things. But most of the trauma that happens, a lot of it is pre verbal. And if we're in an assault and we're disassociated from our bodies when that happens, a lot of times there there are really no words to describe what's happening. A lot of people just experience body sensations. And so if you ask somebody, you know, like, for example, like, why did I have an eating disorder? I can give you a bunch of cognitive reasons now, but that never fixed the behavioral patterns that I was having. Like, I could not talk my way out of my eating disorder because there were things that were happening that were not verbal. They, they, they were things in my nervous system. Like I remember the story of this girl at the hospital that she went home and she ate food. And I remember she, her boyfriend or some, or one of her family members blocked the bathroom because she wanted to throw up and she ran all the way through the house and threw up in the sink. And they were disgusted. And I remember her talking about it the next day when she came in because she was, um, she was outpatient or, you know, I was inpatient, she was outpatient. And I remember thinking, wow, but that, desire, that compulsion to literally go run through the house to go throw up in the kitchen sink, you know, you're not thinking, oh, there's no cognitive process. It's like an animalistic desire to get this food out of your body. And so with a lot of the trauma, it's not necessarily tied in a nice little cognitive bow. There's a lot of stuff happening in the nervous system that a lot of times people can't really put exact words to.
1: And this also includes if when you were young, your parents were fighting. You know, if you saw, if you witnessed, whether it was verbal or physical, sort of contentious arguing and discord, disharmony in the home, affects your nervous system as a baby and as a young toddler like you said pre-verbal doesn't necessarily have to happen to you it can also be what you're witnessing because like you said you know you're kind of a sponge at that age so just to speak to that because I think a lot of our clients as well have had um, homes where there either wasn't a lot of physical affection and love and care and regard and warmth or you know their parents fought a lot there was a lot of discord and you know, dysregulation, like you said.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And that gets stored in our bodies. Um, the cool thing that I love too, when I talk about trauma though, is that if trauma has the ability to be stored in our nervous system and our bodies, so does ancient wisdom. And so does all of this wisdom and healing from everywhere, all around us, generationally, environmentally. There's also amazing... Healing capabilities and wisdom that's also stored in our bodies, and that's really important for me to keep in mind when and I work I also, with people.
1: I also find it inspiring because somatic therapy really can help us unwind a lot of what we're talking about here. Right, your issues are in your tissues, but they don't need to stay there. So you, yeah. this whole point of why you know to me, a lot of somatic therapy is almost like a hack. Like I receive network spinal analysis is the type of somatic therapy that I receive, and you know um, it's basically light like touches along along your spine that inspires a, a wave through your spine that helps your nervous system release tension. And like, there's no lying to my somatic therapist. Like, I get on the table and she can feel what's going on in my, my spine. It's like a hack. Like, it's not like. I've heard some people say like, I'm smarter than my therapist, or I can talk circles around my therapist. And it's like, you can't talk circles around your somatic therapist. Like everything that's going on in your body is, is it's like a hack. It's straight to a lot of times the source. And, um, I'm wondering if you, because you also are a practitioner of a few other modalities. And I'm wondering if you can sort of speak to those and what you've noticed in your clients as you've, as you've worked with them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the two modalities that I use the most and that um, I think people don't really understand is EMDR and brain spotting. So they are brain-based modalities that help to, um, if you picture a brain and you you look to the side, so kind of like a profile picture, the prefrontal cortex is your forehead. And that's where all the cognitive stuff is happening and the talking And what the EMDR and brain spotting are doing is if you move down to get to the middle of your head, it's called the subcortical cortex. And that's actually when pre-verbal stuff is stored. And that's where our trauma is stored without language necessarily. So EMDR and brain spotting access those deeper levels in the brain to work out whatever the body needs to heal. So let me explain what the two modalities are, and I'll explain to them the way that I do to all clients because I'm a visual person. So I'm gonna start with EMDR and go to brain spotting because brain spotting's an offshoot of EMDR. EMDR is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. What that basically means is that you use both hemispheres of your brain and you go back and forth. Often, this is with somebody putting their fingers in front of your face, and then they move them back and forth so that your eyes follow them. It can be done with lights. It can also be done with buzzers in each hand. But the purpose is so that you go left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. It helps to integrate both sides of the brain because each hemisphere stores different things. The left side is more logical. The right side, I believe, stores more emotion and pre trauma. I'd have to check on that for sure. But when you integrate both sides, you can actually work out whatever's stored there. So if you think about a lazy river, like we've all been to on vacation, hopefully, and you think about a donut, like a lazy river around your brain, and it's just floating and it's floating and it's floating. And this is called your adaptive memory network. So it's all your memories, all your things about your life. Then you have a car accident. So the car accident spikes a little bubble, and there's a bubble floating along the lazy river. And usually for about three weeks or so, you're terrified to get in your car, you're afraid to drive. And then after about three weeks, the bubble goes back down into the lazy river and you feel comfortable driving again. Let's just say, this is the example from my training, that you were molested when you were six years old. So there's a bubble that forms and it's floating around the lazy river and it floats and it floats and it floats until you have a kid and it's your child's sixth birthday party. All of a sudden, that bubble breaks open. What is stored in that bubble of trauma are the sights, sounds, emotions, sensations, thoughts you believed about yourself at that time, and the coping skills you had at that time, meaning the coping skills you had when you were six years old. So in this bubble is the neurobiology of all of those things, meaning when it breaks open, you feel as though you're six years old with the sight, sounds, sensations, emotions, thoughts you believed about yourself at that time and the coping skills. What EMDR helps to do is if that is at a level 10 out of 10 and you can't function in the world, it helps to reduce the volume of that so that you can walk around in the world and function still. And then eventually the bubble will reduce, move into the lazy river, and you never forget the information. You still remember that it's a part of your story, but you're able to integrate it so that it doesn't become an experience that you can't move beyond. It just becomes a part of your story. Was there any questions you had on that before I move on to brain spotting?
1: No, I thought that was brilliant. And you know, I definitely just want to corroborate. I guess I just want to corroborate that many of the people that I worked with who were survivors of sexual abuse, that's exactly was their experience of what you described. Of they, they were kind of um, making it through life and then they had a child. And when that child turned the age that they had started to get abused, now all of their shit was up. And sometimes it would interrupt their work. They wouldn't be able to focus or concentrate. They would become sometimes paranoid um, and it just, it became like, this must be dealt with now. This cannot not be dealt with. This is completely, um, now it's urgent.
0: Yeah. And it's a really unsettling experience for people. Like, um, I I use a lot of sexual abuse metaphors because people really get those. But, um, you know, even if you had a boyfriend that was abusive or narcissistic or something, and you see somebody that reminds you of them on the street, your nervous system might be in flight or flight or freaked out for a week. but with EMDR, you're able to see that and you're able to say, okay, I'm safe now. I have tools that can blah, 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 blah. And this person is not that person. And your nervous system can calm down in a way that it couldn't do before EMDR processing. The cool thing that I love about both of these modalities is that you also don't have to talk. So there are clients that love to talk and talk and talk between sets of eye movements. Sometimes I'll actually just have somebody be quiet Um, in my training, they talked about a woman that had been, um, sexually assaulted in college. Somebody broke into her dorm room at night and she couldn't even speak about the event. And the person giving her the EMDR was like, don't worry about it. We'll just do the EMDR. You're just going to tell me change or no change. Meaning is the stuff that you're seeing, feeling, sensing moving or shifting, or is it just staying as is? And they went through the whole session. And then at the very end, she was like, let me tell you everything that happened. And it was because her nervous system had been able to integrate the information in a way that it wasn't terrifying to talk about anymore. And that's one of the reasons I love both of these two, because you can play around and be creative with both of them. So let me move on to brain spotting. So brain spotting is an offshoot. It was developed by, um, a person that was a a master EMDR practitioner. And he noticed that he had a figure skater. He was moving his eyes back and forth. The figure skater wanted to work on being able to do this move that she just couldn't get. And he moved his hands and he noticed her eyes wobble. And I've seen this a lot with people that are in their trauma, their eyes will move and shift very rapidly back and forth, almost in a static position, like um, they're frozen or uh, like electrocuted or something. And so he just felt the impulse to hold his hand there. 10 minutes of processing later, she was like, I'm done. And he was like, what the hell happened? She went and did that move 35 times, no mistake what had happened was that she said she processed a lot of her old injuries and physical trauma that she had around being a professional figure skater. And after that, she was able to do this move. So he got real interested in this. And um, his name, by the way, is David Grant. He's the creator of Brainspotting. And he got real interested in this. And so brain Spotting is a way that how you look, where you look, depends on how you feel. So, for example, if I'm talking about my ex-boyfriend that was abusive or narcissistic and you notice that I tend to look down into the right as I'm talking about this boyfriend, most likely down into the right correlates that so that eye position correlates in my brain to where that information is stored. So we find the eye position of whatever activation is there And then we keep your eyes on that eye position. And the brain is a freaking genius. The brain will bring you anything that you need for your healing. And we just follow. We get really curious. We just follow whatever's coming up and whatever's happening. And we just move through how the brain is going to reorganize that information for your healing.
1: And when you say we right now, you're talking about therapists, the therapists yes. who are holding the space and, you, and, and doing brain spotting. And I think what's important about what you just said is that there's, there's almost like a gentle quality to somatic therapies that I've noticed and kind of comes up here as you are explaining that, which is that the client, the person having the experience, their, their system is in charge they their body and their brain knows how to do the healing that's necessary it's just being facilitated by the therapist that's holding space but really they're in charge and i think that's kind of a flip from traditional therapy where there's sort of a role of like the talk therapist like being in charge or sort of like leading right and there's a different it's a different sense of of things when the client is their body and their brain is sort of leading the way. And there are these modalities that are basically helping unlock the wisdom needed to heal, that that wisdom exists already in your system. And these these modalities are sort of just helping, you know, um, kind of laser focus on it to help it do its thing.
0: Yeah. Um, I was working with somebody that I was doing some EMDR with, and we were working on something about their father. And um, we could have done 2000 talk sessions around this. And we did an EMDR session and she had this memory of a balloon and a mailbox. And I was like, what the F? And then she knew exactly what that meant. And it was something that related to the issue that we were talking about with her father that never would have come up in talk therapy because I never would have asked her anything about. Tell me about any mailboxes, or you know let me i, I don 't really think that would have come up, or if it would have it would have come up so far into talk sessions. so what I notice is that when you allow the person 's brain to move in any way, the information 's provided for the healing, and all i 'm doing is i 'm supporting like obviously whatever comes up, and I tell my clients this because I believe it i 'm like. I will, I can hold space for anything that you bring into the room. And I know this because I work with severely abused DID clients. So I can hold space for anything that you tell me, no matter how horrific it is. Like I'm here, I got you, we got this. And that has been so helpful for people because when you go into trauma, it can be terrifying, And the last thing you ever want is the therapist to be like, oh, well, wait, tell me again what happened. And, you know, you want your therapist to be like, yeah, it's okay. Like we're moving through it. And so I think just, this is why, um, I always advocate therapy, um, with somebody that is a trusted person because you don't really want to be going to processing your trauma alone. That's the reason that we don't do it because it's terrifying and we avoid it. But if you have the support of somebody else holding the space and the energy for you, then you're held and you can go into that. And no matter what happens, you have the thread to lead you out. Because the therapist is there and like, they know what to do. Like if they are a trained therapist, like they know what to do. You are safe in that room with them in that moment in time, no matter what you go into, no matter how much you might freak out or potentially disassociate. We like, we, we know how to bring you back. We know how to have you here with us. Like that's, that's the work that we do. If, if you're a trained trauma specialist.
1: Yeah. Just a shout out to, um, you know, fit right fit with your therapist. You really want to feel safe with that person and use your intuition when selecting because, you know, therapists are people (laughs) and like not every mechanic is a good mechanic. Like not every therapist is a good therapist, but trained trauma therapists and specifically therapists that use somatic modalities is who I will generally refer our clients to. So a lot of the men in our program will Will do somatic therapy at some point during or after the program, and that's really what I'm advocating for is someone who is trauma informed, because that's almost always what is what needs to be processed, and and part of the reason that I advocate for somatic therapist of some kind, whether it's EMDR or brain spotting or SE or whatever it is, is because I think it's faster. I think it's I, I want my men to get results faster and be able yeah. to move. Towards what they want faster. I don't want them to be endlessly talking about things. Um, and I really, I believe, like this is the this is the future of therapy. Like a lot of people that I know in the field, it's it's it's, it's sort of becoming more and more um, integrated into therapy as a as a field because it does feel like you know the evidence is showing repeatedly that the the people that are doing some kind of somatic therapy are frequently getting better results more quickly. So if you have any, do you have any um, last sort of anecdotes that come to mind in terms of, I've really enjoyed the stories that you've told so far, the figure (laughs) was fascinating, Um, but any sort of stories about um, men, I know you primarily work with women, but any sort of stories about men that have been able to kind of process something if it had to do with like sexuality or anything like that, that comes to mind. That's
0: a good question. Um, I know that I do. Um, so, hmm. so I think sometimes, and I, I just want to bring this up. So I, I do have a male client that I work with and, um, A lot of times people talk about resistance and I don't really like that term because what we're dealing with is fear. We're dealing with somebody that does not want to open up the wound of some traumatic event that happened to them. Like who the hell wants to do that? Nobody, (laughs) like nobody wants to do that. And the way that I always, I often work is we're going to go in, we're going to get enough information to reorganize that. And then we're going to put it on the shelf and move forward. We're not going to stay in your trauma forever and ever. Like that is not healthy. I don't believe in that, but we need, I do believe in getting in there enough to heal and facilitate whatever's disorganized enough to reorganize it and then move forward. So I guess with this particular client that I'm thinking about, there was a time where we were having a conversation And um, there was a lot of, in quotes, resistance. And what I finally had the conversation about was this part of him that just checks out and goes away whenever we talked about vulnerability or showing up to emotion. And so sometimes the work really just is stepping lightly into it. It's going as slow as you need to go in order to create a space of safety It's um, the metaphor I often use is uh, pushing a little kid into a dark room and just being like, shut up. It's fine. There's nothing scary in it. Like that kid's like, um, hell no, I'm not going into that dark room. But if you're like, Hey, we're going to go into this room. I'm going to give you a flashlight. I'm going to hold your hand. I'm going to be with you. Like they still might only step in the door, but if all you do is step in the door for that entire session, that is the work of that session. And I often, um, you know, we often have this idea that when we go to therapy or when we're doing healing, it's like supposed to be quick and easy and like moving forward. And sometimes there are just parts where it is really scary and we don't want to step into it. And just noticing that fear that comes up, even thinking about stepping into it, noticing what happens in your body when you even think about addressing you know, whatever happened in your childhood or that narcissistic ex that you had or your divorce or, you know, the war memory. Just noticing what happens in your body. Sometimes that entire session will just be that. And that is the work.
1: That was beautiful. And I think what I hear implicitly in in that is, and that's enough for that session. It doesn't have to happen at the same exact time or or sorry, like, I don't know. You know, we're going to start to wrap up here, but there's this concept of that trauma needs to be titrated, which really just yeah. means it can't all be processed at the same time. So when I'm talking about, you know, somatic therapy is faster, I don't want that to make it sound like it's one session and then you're done. What I mean is you can, you can process more and, and trauma still needs to be titrated. It can't all be processed at once, especially if it's severe. And, you know, that obviously depends on each person's background.
0: Yeah. And I do do believe, I mean, that's why I do the modalities that I do, because I want the most effective, efficient way. And I do a couple different modalities that I absolutely adore. Um, And it's because I want everything I can have in my toolbox to help people move as fast as they are willing and able to move through whatever they want to explore and process through, to have a happy, healthy, meaningful life.
1: And that's really the point, right? Is that we want people to thrive, right? Because yeah. once you've processed your trauma, you just have so much more access to creativity and wisdom and joyful expression and relaxation. And I remember reading this really inspiring story about a veteran who um, was receiving acupuncture as as a somatic therapy. And he had done talk therapy and it hadn't really helped him at all. But mm-hmm. he did a couple of acupuncture sessions. And after one of them, he sat in his truck and he cried with joy because he said, I had forgotten what happiness felt like. Aww. Touching into it after that session, his nervous system was able to release all this tension. And then once that was released, he just, he felt better. He just felt better. Yeah. He tried to feel better, tried to talk himself into feeling better, willed himself there, but he, he got the somatic therapy he needed. And then his body was like, Oh, I can, I can breathe again. You know, I well, can, that's
0: the whole point, right?
1: Like when we feel safe, we want to open
0: up and connect. We want to change. Like we want to connect, like we're designed for this. It's just when we feel unsafe, we close, collapse, freeze, you know, but we are designed to open up and connect and obviously if it's safe to do so, exactly. And so it's just clearing out anything that stands in the way of basically getting down to who we really are, these wonderful energetic beings that are loving and kind and want to connect and share with each other in a safe and healthy way.
1: And be creative, be creatively expressed, be actually as big and expanded as you, as you can be. Yeah. Awesome. Well, um, any last thoughts about finding a somatic therapist and, or if someone is interested in working with you? Um, yes.
0: So thoughts on finding a somatic therapist? a therapist. Um, I love somatic therapy. Definitely look up somebody that's done the training to be an SEP, which is somatic experience practitioner. It's a three-year program. So they know what the hell they're doing and they're amazing. I have a really good friend that's an SEP and I adore her. And so look up somebody if you're really interested in doing that type of work. There's other types of work like Hakomi, there's NARM, N-A-R-M. There's all types of different ways. Um, there's also sites, goodtherapy.com and psychology today, I believe have search sites that you can search. And there's a page on the left that will allow you to check whether it's EMDR or brain spotting. um, if you want to do that, and some of them will have somatic therapy as well. So specifically find somebody,
1: you mean somatic experiencing, right?
0: Um, it'll usually say somatic experiencing, I believe, and then it, it has a whole bunch of different. Drop down things too, so there may be others. Usually, I usually I look for SE EMDR brain spotting, Um, but there are lots of people that are out there that do this work. And um, depending on where you live and COVID now, you can do this stuff on Zoom. I I have clients on Zoom, and I love doing stuff on Zoom. And Um, you can do
1: brain spotting and EMDR and SE over Zoom. Those all work over Zoom. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, To work with me. So I obviously work in a psychotherapy um, capacity, but I only take clients through the facility that I work, but I do work in a coaching capacity with clients. And And for that, will you do brain spotting and EMDR in as a coach or? So I I will do I will do variations of that with the coaching capacity. It's really focused on more future focused healing, but I will also bring in capacities of things that I believe will help their nervous system to heal. So okay. as I'm G- as I'm designed, you know, um, I work in the capacity of a coach with my coaching clients um, because coaching and therapy are a little bit different. Um, but I obviously bring in everything we talked about is part of how I conceptualize clients towards health and healing. So I'm going to work with what's showing up to get the person to be able to release. But mostly coaching is we stay mostly in the present moment and tracking in the present moment. And for that, you can uh, reach out through the podcast. Um, I have a contact page on uh, zzocalante.com, which is my website, my coaching page. And I believe that my Google number is on the coaching form. And you can call and leave me a message letting me know if you're interested in coaching capacities with me. That's the best way to reach me at the moment. And I'm currently creating a couple other new things that are in the works. But right now, that's the best way. Perfect. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. This is fun.
1: Hey guys, thanks for listening. Just again, a quick note if you're interested in the course, you can find it at pleaserinbed.com, www.pleaserinbed.com or at my site melaniecurtin.com under courses and have a very sexy day.